Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. A nine-year-old fourth-grade girl in elementary school went missing after watching a baseball game in her hometown, Sanjo, in the Niigata Prefecture in Japan. Despite a massive search party, the police were unable to find the girl, or even any clues related to her disappearance. It got to the point where they even began to expect that she was one of a growing number of girls kidnapped by North Korean operatives. The truth was, after heading home that day, she was ambushed by a strange man who grabbed her and threw her into the trunk of his car. She was then held in the upstairs apartment at the man's mother's home for over nine years straight, never stepping foot outside, despite the house being only a short walk from the nearest police station. After watching my videos, I'm sure you've come to see that safety is extremely important. Maybe you're even feeling a bit paranoid. Well, I can offer you some security, or internet security, thanks to the sponsor of this video, Surfshark VPN. Surfshark VPN is a service that can encrypt your data online so that you aren't able to be tracked by anyone, criminal or otherwise. It does so by swapping your location with different servers around the world, hiding your real location. Not only does Surfshark keep your data secure by hiding your location, but you can use hiding your location to your advantage as well. By changing your location, you can bypass censorship no matter where you are. Surfshark frees your internet browsing by unblocking blocked websites and even bypassing geo-restrictions, namely websites your country might have blocked. A VPN encrypts your online data and helps to secure your personal information when you use free public Wi-Fi, too. If you go out with your laptop a lot like I do, using public Wi-Fi can be a goldmine for all the hackers out there. Think about all the personal information you put online on a daily basis. Using Surfshark will take care of that problem and secure your data so that you can keep your personal data, like your passwords and credit cards, safe. You can even use the app to better monitor your personal data and check for potential breaches of security. You'll even get alerts in real time to help you protect your identity. Now you've even got Surfshark's clean web feature, which blocks ads, trackers, malware, and phishing attempts, making your trip through the internet just that much safer. So why not get started today? Right now, Surfshark is offering 83% off of your subscription and an extra three months for free with the special code DIRETRIP, all one word. They offer a 30-day money-back guarantee as well, so there's no reason not to give it a shot. So go ahead and check the description below to get your link and get started on Surfshark VPN. Let me start off by saying this case is very dark. More so than usual. This is somewhat of a sequel to the Junko Furuta video. The cases were pretty often compared in the Japanese media, and I think you'll see why later on. Uh, given that, I just want to give out a little warning. This one gets bad, too. If you have a hard time stomaching this sort of thing, just feel free to click off to another video. But if you're prepared, let's get started. Fusako Sano had been kidnapped by a very mentally ill man named Nobuyuki Sato, then 28 years old and unemployed. Sato was born in 1962 to a father who was a chauffeur to a wealthy client at a big company in Tokyo during the post-war era. That father had five kids with another mother, but ended up outliving her and then married Sato's mother afterwards. His father was 62 while his mother was 36. 
His father had built a new home for Sato and his mother, which included a large western-style room on the second floor which was to be his nursery. Unfortunately, this cozy room for one child would end up being a complete living hell for another. Sato, when getting into middle school, eventually told his mother that he was too scared to go to school. He was taken to a mental health facility and diagnosed as having germophobia, among other things. His phobia got so intense that he would threaten to disown his father if he ever came home with the slightest amount of dirt on him. In high school, although being quite tall and somewhat intimidating, he was very soft-spoken, often being called an Okama by the other kids. Which is a word that basically translates as a slur against gay or trans people. He withdrew into himself and took his anger home with him, often venting and taking his frustrations out on his family. Afterwards, he went to go work at an automobile parts factory, but his eccentricities often got him into trouble. There was a public urination case, for one, and another time he retreated back home on his way to work, uh, his excuse being that he got caught in a spider web. So eventually he left that job and stopped working entirely. It's safe to say that by this point in his life, he was already pretty gone. At age 19, he got into an argument with his mother, claiming he was leaving home for good. He set fire to a Buddhist altar in the home, which spiraled out of control into a huge house fire. He was taken in for another mental examination, and it was determined that he had a severe case of OCD. After about a month of intense medication and supervision, he was released. After that point, he spent most of his time betting on horse races and obsessing over idols. Eventually, he told his mother that it was time he started becoming independent and expressed his interest in building an addition onto their house. She complied and a new room was added to the second floor of the home, giving him somewhat of his own apartment up there. But the room was given up on mid-construction. Sato kept fussing over the construction crew bringing germs into the home, and he also failed to keep many of his promises, including looking for a job. It was at this point that Sato went from being a regular piece of shit to a criminal piece of shit. In June of 1989, he ended up waiting outside of an elementary school gate and shadowing four young girls as they walked out of the school, all around nine years old. He ended up tailing one until she came close to a vacant lot, when he then dragged her into said lot and attempted to have his way with her. However, another girl ended up witnessing him taking her off into the lot and ran off to tell some older students. An office worker from the school then showed up and captured Sato. The police were called and he was arrested on charges of an attempted indecent act. Two months after this, his father would pass away, likely in complete shame over what his son had become. In that September, he was sentenced to a one-year suspended sentence as a result. The court decided that his chances of reoffending were low, and in lieu of probation, decided to release him to his mother's custody, on the condition that she look after him and guide him. And as we know, this didn't work out. While still on his suspended sentence, Sato took his mother's car and went out for a drive on November 13th of 1990. He drove around for a couple of hours until he ended up spotting a young girl that piqued his interest. Fusako Sano at around 5 p.m. It was unplanned, as far as we know. 
Upon seeing the little girl walking around by herself, he made the decision to kidnap her. He parked the car in front of her and got out, brandishing a knife, making his way closer to her. He told her, be good and don't say a word. Sano was too scared to move, so Sato was able to pick her up and throw her into the trunk of the car easily. He drove for a while until he stopped on the side of the road where he got out and ran to the back of the car. He opened the trunk and bound Sano's hands with tape and covered her eyes as well. He once again closed the trunk and set off towards his house, arriving home at around 6.30pm. So that his mom wouldn't spot him hauling a nine-year-old into the house, he decided to enter the home through an entrance to the unfinished addition to the house. Then he went back around to the front door by himself and entered the home as normal, as if nothing was out of the ordinary. He went up to Sano, locked up in the old nursery, and removed her blindfold. He told her, you don't want to end up killed like all those other kidnapped girls, do you? You're never going to leave this room. You're going to live in here forever. If you break this promise, I won't need you anymore. I'll bury you in the mountains or send you floating away in the ocean, he added. From here on, her confinement would continue for years and years and years. When Sano didn't come home that night, her mother went to a police substation and begged them to search for her. A search party formed of police officers and volunteers from the school, getting as large as 200 people, and they set out to search for any clues as to her whereabouts. They searched everywhere, from vacant homes to shipping containers, even using helicopters to search for the girl. Over 20,000 missing posters were drafted up and passed around, but no clues were ever found. Sato continued to threaten Sano repeatedly during her confinement. He would often swing his knife around her, injuring her dozens of times in the process. In the beginning, he would bind her up so tightly that she couldn't move whenever he went to bed for the night. Her legs were bound tightly together for over a year straight. To make it even more difficult for her to escape, Sato kept the layout of the home a secret to her. Whenever he would leave the room, he would either blindfold her or tie her up and throw her under a blanket on the bed. After about a year or two, Sato got more violent in his torture of Sano. He started using a stun gun to deal out his sick punishments, threatening to stab her if she let out her voice while being shocked. She often had to bite down on a blanket to refrain from screaming as she got stunned. He would also attempt pro wrestling moves on her as well, again punishing her if she let her voice slip. It's believed that he hit her lightly during the duration of her captivity over 700 times, and that he hit her with considerable strength around 300 times. She would get hit in the eyes so hard that she would lose her sight from time to time. Eventually, she started using the stun gun on herself, hoping to be able to get used to the sensation so that it wouldn't bother her anymore. She developed a dissociative disorder as a defense mechanism, meaning she began feeling that another person was the one being hit, not her, allowing her to kind of distance herself from the pain inside her mind. Sano was initially, obviously, terrified, but this fear soon waned as she began to give up and accept her fate. Sato would bring clothes to her for her to wear, usually his own, and initially fed her three times a day. It was either food that he brought by himself, or food that was cooked by his mother, who was still living on the first floor. For some reason, Sato began fearing that Sano might be developing diabetes because of a bruise on her leg, likely caused by him. He decided that she was getting too much sugar and began limiting her meals to once a day. 
She went from weighing 46 kilograms to 38 kilograms and began feeling very faint most of the time, usually spending most of her time lying down. Eventually, her legs withered to the point of being unable to walk around on her own anymore. She needed to build strength in her legs, but Sato wouldn't allow this, as that might end up with her exposing herself to his mother. There was no toilet on the second floor of the home, and Sato, obsessing over cleanliness in an odd way, didn't use the toilet, instead using plastic bags, which he would then seal and put out into the hallway. He was embarrassed of this, so he forbid Sano to see the hallway, blindfolding her if it were ever necessary to go out there. One day, after being severely weakened, Sano fell out of bed, injuring her already weakened body. Nevertheless, she was forced to crawl down the stairs and into the shower herself while still blindfolded. The mother of Sato consulted the public health center in January 1996, because Sato had been acting strangely and had become very violent towards her. However, nothing was really done about it. Sato's mother, despite living downstairs, is reported to have had absolutely no contact with Sano whatsoever over the years. Sato would get very violent if she ever attempted to go upstairs, leading to her never even trying to go up there. Many people, however, including the police, speculate that she must have had some knowledge that another person was up there. It's alleged that she bought feminine hygiene products for Sato, for example. Sato would cut Sano's hair by himself, often into short, choppy cuts. There was no bath on the second floor of the home, so Sano was only allowed to bathe once in a while, with permission and while being watched by her captor. She lived a very boring life while not being directly harmed by Sato. She spent the bulk of her time listening to the radio and reading newspapers. Later on in her captivity, she was allowed to watch TV from time to time. Sato would also talk to her about topics that interested him, providing the most mild of entertainment. The door to the apartment was never locked, but despite this, Sano never attempted to even take one step outside in all of those years. At first, it was because she was too scared, but eventually it was because she lost all the willpower and energy to even try. Throughout her confinement, Sano had very little exposure to the outside world outside of TV and radio. She never developed, mentally, past her nine-year-old state. It was later found that she had a very noticeably low intelligence level when compared to peers of her own age. Sato stated that he saw Sano as a friend throughout her captivity, and claimed that he gave her everything she needed to develop normally. By this point in her captivity, she started obeying my orders very well. I thought that I'd like to live with her forever. We could talk on equal footing about horse races and cars. I genuinely did like her. It felt like she was a girl my own age. She was an irreplaceable partner to me, so I could never let her go, Sato said. Sato's mother was so afraid of his violent outbursts that she tried to work as much as possible. When she was forced to retire at 65, she began killing time outside the house as much as possible to avoid going home. By 1999, Sato began using the stun gun on his mother as well. Along with punching her and kicking her, he began tying her up as well, only releasing her to let her go to the bathroom, according to the mother. The mother called to get mental help for her son on January 12th of 2000, and basically getting nothing out of it, she then tried calling again on January 19th, begging for an official to come visit the home. 
They finally complied, and some healthcare officials finally did visit the home that Friday on the 28th. Healthcare workers approached Sato and told him that he was going to be taken in for a mental health evaluation. This resulted in an enormous violent outburst that did nothing but further prove their point. Subsequently, the police were called to the scene. It was during the commotion that everyone noticed a lump under a blanket moving around in his room. When removing the blanket, they were shocked to reveal a sickly pale, short-haired girl underneath. They asked her who she was. She simply told them, I need to get my thoughts in order. They called Sato's mother into the room and asked who the hell this girl was. She responded, I don't know, I've never seen her before. They then informed the girl that Sato was likely going to be going away for a long time and asked what she wanted to do, likely thinking that she could have possibly been his girlfriend. Sano looked toward the mother and asked, Is it okay if I stay here? The officials urged her to call her own home. She responded, My home might not be around anymore. The mother asked where her home was. Sano responded, Maybe here. Sano was then taken to the hospital, as Sato was taken away to a mental facility and his mother was taken to a separate hospital. They urged her to please give them her identity, saying they could work to find her family if they were still out there. She finally complied. The police were shocked to find that she had been the young girl that went missing almost a decade prior. Sano told the officials, I was abducted near the school by a man who forced me into a car. For nine years, I did not take a step out of the house. Today, I went out for the first time. Upon her medical examination after being rescued, Sano was found to be relatively healthy given the circumstances, although she was notably very weak and skinny due to the lack of food and exercise. She could barely walk, her leg muscles had atrophied so badly. She was also fairly dehydrated as well. Due to a complete lack of exposure to sunlight, she was extremely pale and suffering from jaundice. While she had the body of an emaciated 19-year-old, she was mentally on par with a child. Understandably, she also had a pretty severe case of PTSD. Soon after, the police were finally able to get in contact with Sano's mother. She was finally reunited with her family after almost 10 years. Her own mother didn't even recognize her at first, given that she hadn't seen her since she was 9 years old. Nobuyuki Sato, now 37 years old, was hospitalized that very day, being deemed mentally unstable. Within a month, his status was formally changed from suspect to criminal, and he was finally arrested on February 11th of 2000. Sato's mother was heavily criticized around the time of his arrest. Given that the Junko Furuta case from 1989 was still at this time fresh on the minds of the populace, people couldn't help but make connections. In both cases, a young girl was held captive on the second floor of a home while the parents lived on the first floor. In the Junko Furuta case, the parents knew very well that a girl was being held upstairs and chose to do nothing. Could that have been the same in this case? People were eager to find the answer to that question. The mother defended herself, saying, I didn't know of the captivity, and I haven't set foot on the second floor for years. To be fair, absolutely none of the mother's fingerprints were found on the second floor. Sano herself confirmed that she knew of the mother's existence, but that was about it. The mother was left as merely a witness in the case. After Sano was rescued, the police in Japan started facing some heavy criticism. 
mainly given that Sato had already attempted to kidnap another young girl in the same fashion, and he was simply let go. And oddly enough, his name had disappeared from their internal list of criminals, so he was never even considered a suspect in Sano's disappearance in the first place. Despite fitting the bill pretty perfectly and being in that very area. When Sano was rescued, the Niigata Prefectural Police Chief, a man named Koji Kobayashi, didn't even show up to the police station to check up on the investigation. Instead, he spent his night playing mahjong with the head of the regional police bureau. After a word of this got out, along with a slew of errors made by the police in the coming weeks, Kobayashi formally resigned from his position on February 26th that year. The head of the regional police bureau also ended up resigning a few days later on the 29th. The media began publishing pictures of Sano and her family, which was deemed as a human rights violation by the police and heavily criticized. The anonymity of all involved in this case was quickly lost as this case became a media storm. One side would often argue that Sano never tried to escape and that something was fishy. The other side argued that she was convinced that she would be killed if she tried to escape, so naturally she wouldn't try. It's pretty sick that this was an argument in the first place. Sato's trial began a few months later on May 23rd in 2000. The prosecutors walked on eggshells throughout the case, trying not to damage Sano's already fragile mental health throughout the proceedings. Sato claimed insanity, after which some psychiatrists held some tests to determine if that was truly the case. They found that he was at least mentally fit to face his charges, and he himself ended up admitting to them. Sato was facing 10 years in prison, the maximum penalty for abduction. Uh, ironically, not really any longer than he had held Sano captive. Prosecutors, along with virtually everyone else, felt that this sentencing was pretty light given the circumstances. To boost the sentence a little bit, they started adding every minor charge they could think of. This even included charges for one time that Sato had shoplifted some women's underwear. Uh, really just anything to get that year total up. Sato, now 40, was finally found guilty. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison due to a combination of charges including abduction, confinement, and theft. His defense soon appealed on January 24th in 2002, and the trial ended up moving up to the Tokyo High Court. Unfortunately, on December 10th, the High Court actually decided to reduce Sato's sentence down to 11 years. They said that the ruling by the district court was technically done wrong. It ruled that his charges should be dealt with individually, not lumped together. So he would serve the maximum 10 years for the abduction charge and one additional year for the theft charges. Sato was then sent off to Chiba Prison, which is not surprisingly in the Chiba Prefecture. Sano's father ended up breaking his silence and releasing a statement after the high court ruling, saying that no matter what they decided upon, there was only anger and regret left for their family. Nothing was going to change that their family was deprived of happiness and a regular home life. There was no way to regain that nine years, two months, and fifteen days of my daughter's life during which she could not feel any joy, happiness, pain, or sadness as one normally would, he said. 
Fortunately, he was able to add that his daughter had gradually come to live a peaceful, relatively normal life, and that she would often spend her days watching soccer matches or taking photos of flowers in the garden with a digital camera. She was also able to get her driver's license and attend her coming-of-age ceremony when she turned 20. Although more than three years had passed since she had been saved by that point, she was still receiving counseling from a team of medical doctors appointed by the prefecture between two to four times a month. In 2003, during Sato's prison stay, his mother passed away at an old folks' home. The same as his father, likely in shame. In the coming years after she was released, Sano dealt with more hardship as her father drowned in a pond right in front of her eyes as the two went swimming for fun. Naturally, she was devastated, but at least for a time, the two were able to reunite. Mostly due to the outrage surrounding this case, the punishment for criminal confinement was increased from 10 years to 15 years. In April of 2015, Sato was eventually released from prison. He chose not to go back to Niigata and instead chose to remain in Chiba, where his prison was. He lived alone in a small apartment and mainly lived off of welfare for the disabled. Two years later, in 2017, it was noticed that Sato failed to show up to work one day. Police went out to his place and he was found dead, all alone in his tiny apartment in Chiba City. He was in his mid-50s at the time. An autopsy was performed, but the cause of his death wasn't found. Fusako Sano attempted to return to a normal life. Her physical health improved greatly, and she was finally able to move around normally. She helps out in her family's rice paddy out in the countryside. Due to her stunted social development, she has a hard time socializing. She doesn't have many friends and often spends her time alone. But she keeps busy with her photography hobby and her love of soccer and attends games pretty often. Her family continues to refuse to comment on the ordeal. Once again, this has been your host, Kyle. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast episode. Feel free to look through my huge library of other stories if you found this one interesting, and be sure to be there for the next stories that come out each and every week. Have a good night.